Good morning, guys. Welcome to Salt City. For those of you I haven't met yet, my name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here, and we have been studying through the Gospel of Matthew for the last several weeks. We're going to continue that study this morning in Matthew chapter 5, and we're looking at something called the Beatitudes. And the word Beatitude, it means supreme blessedness. And so what we're looking at is how to be blessed by God as a Christian. And so there's a couple different interpretations that I've come across of the Beatitudes. And one of those interpretations is that the Beatitudes are laying out the ideal way to live life, to get God's blessing. And the other interpretation says that the Beatitudes are a low bar that anyone can jump over. And I actually think what the Beatitudes are teaching us is that they're simultaneously an ideal that we're to live into and a low bar that anyone can jump over. It's sort of like imagining that the entrance requirements to get into a school are that you have no resume at all. So in one sense, it's a super low bar. Anybody can get in on that. But in another sense, it's an ideal because who wants to give up their resume? Who would be willing to burn their resume to get into a school? Probably not many of us. And so there's a counterintuitive blessedness that Jesus is calling us into. And what we're going to see is that God blesses the upside-down life. Another way of saying that is that God blesses spiritual losers. You want to get in on this, you got to be a loser. Right? First thing that God blesses in people is he blesses those that are poor in spirit. Okay, we're starting with verse 3 of Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at eight of these things and people that God blesses. So God blesses the poor in spirit. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we've been talking about the kingdom of heaven, the rule and the reign of Jesus. And we've already seen that in order to enter the kingdom, you must repent and believe. Repent of your sin and believe that Jesus is the king. So now Jesus is laying out what characterizes those who are his followers. And he kicks it off with a bang. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, when we talk about somebody's spirit, we might talk about how they have school spirit. And when somebody has school spirit, we'd say they're peppy and they're full of excitement and they're full of joy. When somebody's poor in spirit, it means the exact opposite, that the person in terms of their spirit has nothing to bring to the table. So immediately Jesus is flipping the script for us. He says, you want to get in on the kingdom of God, you've got to be poor in spirit. You have to be spiritually impoverished. You need to be a beggar. All you need to inherit the kingdom of God is to need to inherit the kingdom of God. 
all you need is need. And so you see how simultaneously, that's a low bar. Anybody can get in on this. But what so few of us have is a desperation for God. And so I don't know how you feel when you're driving around the Twin Cities and you get stopped at a stoplight and there's somebody standing on the side of the road with a cardboard sign that says, anything helps. But to be honest, sometimes I feel kind of uncomfortable and I avoid eye contact a little bit because somebody being in need makes me feel uncomfortable as somebody who doesn't have material need. And I think all of us feel uncomfortable when we talk about need because we think of ourselves as being self-sufficient. We think of ourselves as having everything put together and we don't want to be beggars. We don't want to be in need. And Jesus says, anybody can get in on this. Everybody must enter the kingdom of God the same way. Rich or poor, black or white, Jew or Gentile, whatever your background is, you enter the kingdom with nothing. That's the first thing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He continues in verse 4 and he says that those who mourn are blessed. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So when we think about earning somebody's favor or making a good impression, we think that we need to have a smile on our face. And we, we definitely, if we were interviewing for a job, would hide our sadness. Even if we were deeply sad about something, we would want to hide our sadness because the way that the world works is if you want to get somebody's approval, you're happy. And Jesus says the kingdom of God is different than that. The kingdom of God, you enter through mourning. So I think what he's talking about here is mourning the condition of the world. It's mourning both the sin in your life and the brokenness that that's caused, the sin of those around you, but not just the sin, the effects of sin, which is suffering. The world was cursed by God because of our sin, which means all human suffering can be traced back to human sin. And what we do when we've entered the kingdom of God is we mourn. We look at the condition of the world and we are deeply dissatisfied with this place. And so as a person who's merely in the world and of the world, they look at the world and they think of it as home. And we think of the world as a wasteland. This is not my home. This is a sad place. And, and counterintuitively, when you believe, believe that the world is a sad place, a hopeless place in and of itself, what you begin to experience is the comfort of God. And, and we see this throughout the Bible, specifically 
in the psalm. So Psalm 42.3, I read this a few days ago. This is one of the lines from Psalm 42. It says, my tears have been my food day and night. The experience of the people of God is deep sadness at the condition of our own hearts and the condition of the world. But counterintuitively, when we begin to weep in the presence of God about the condition of the world, we find ourselves to be comforted by God himself. God is able to give you a consolation that having a big house or a well-paying job could never give to you. What you're looking for in life is something that life can never provide for you. And so the blessing comes to those who mourn. Thirdly, Jesus says the blessing of the kingdom is for the meek. He says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So meekness is essentially a humble assessment of yourself. It's looking at yourself as you are. Now, there's a couple things that are true of you that are involved in a humble assessment. One is that you are made in the image of God. So you have tremendous strengths. But as Christians, we don't take credit for our strengths. We say thank you for our strengths. Because we understand that our strengths are a gift from God. And so we don't say, here you go, God. Here's my gift to you when it comes to our strengths. We say, thank you, God. What a gift these strengths are. So part of meekness is rightly assessing ourselves and saying, thank you for our strengths. But the other aspect of meekness is seeing that we have tremendous weakness and brokenness. So we don't just believe that we're created in the image of God. We believe that we are fallen. And so a right assessment of ourselves is an admission that we are not just sinners, but we are also human. We get tired. We get worn out. We get depleted. And so we can just admit not only that we're sinful and broken, but that we're human. And there's this tremendous freedom that comes when we stop pretending that we're always energetic and that we always have it together and we're meek in the sense that our strengths are augmented by the reality of who we are. Are you tired of pretending? Tired of pretending? Tired of putting on a bold front? Tired of being proud? The kingdom of God is for you. And Jesus says that this is the way that you inherit the earth. Those who will rule in the kingdom of God are those who will admit their weakness and that everything that they have is a gift from God. You know, I've had the opportunity to get some, to know some leaders in the church over the years and sometimes you look at somebody who's teaching the Bible and what you see when they're up front is you see them operating in their strength. But one of the cool things about having been on various church staffs and things like that is I've just frankly seen 
that leaders are normal, ordinary people who have strengths and who have weaknesses. And, and that's been so freeing to me because I've realized that I can be myself and that God loves me and wants to use me just as I am. In fact, every time before I come up on the stage, I, I'll repeat some scripture to myself and I'll just remind myself that God's grace is sufficient for me because his power is made perfect in my weakness. Now that's the secret to kingdom power is not having all of your stuff together, but realizing that you don't have to. And that's what meekness is all about. The fourth thing Jesus says is that the kingdom is for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, we live in a cultural moment where people are claiming to possess righteousness. I am a person who is doing justice. I'm a person who's on the right side of history. I'm the person who's part of the right political party, and I want everybody to know it because I'm telling you I'm better than you. It's the cultural moment. Jesus flips that on its head. He says, these are the people who bless, not those who possess righteousness, but those who long for righteousness. Who realize that they are not righteous. That is not good, not moral, not on the right side of history, not living good, upstanding lives, but who realize that they have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, who don't see themselves in comparison to other people, but see themselves in comparison to God and say with Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, woe is me. For I am a man or woman of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. We recognize our sinfulness in the presence of God. And so we hunger and thirst to be righteous. Righteousness is as important to your life as food and drink. And so we ask this question, how can I be made right. So imagine the scenario. Imagine it's Thanksgiving. And you've been invited to somebody's house and you know that they're an amazing cook. And you could have this feast laid out in front of you. And you're kind of a terrible cook. But you feel this pressure to create your own amazing Thanksgiving experience. And so you have this dilemma, you can have the pride of creating your own Thanksgiving that probably won't be that good, or you can go participate in this amazing Thanksgiving that somebody else will provide for you. Here's what Jesus is saying. God can provide you a righteousness like a food or drink that you could never provide for yourself. And he's inviting you to a meal. And what you have to admit is something that's very hard to admit in this moment and say, I, I can't figure it out. 
I don't know how to live a righteous life. I'm not a good person. And in fact, if you could see my heart, you would see that I am among the most messed up people on earth. My thoughts, my actions, what I do in secret is not pleasing to God. And I need him to give me righteousness because I don't have it myself. How freeing would that be, guys? The freedom to be wrong. Isn't that great? Just, I'm, I'm the wrong one. Try responding to a social media post like that. I'm wrong. That's me. I'm the problem with the world. Humiliating, but totally freeing. Because we don't even believe our own claims about ourselves. And no one does. Everyone's pretending something is true about themselves that's not true about themselves. You want to be satisfied, receive righteousness, stop trying to achieve it. Number five, the merciful are blessed. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We can get so good at pointing out other people's faults. This can especially be true within the church. And we can become the moral police. We think we're supposed to let everybody know when they've messed up in a sort of condemning way and and constantly let each other know where we stand kind of in the pecking order. And Jesus says, that's not how the kingdom of God works. Here's who the blessing comes to. It's to the merciful. Merciful people aren't people who point out other people's faults. They're people who cover over people's faults. We love, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, you might have heard it at a wedding, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. And mercy within the context of this church family, within the context of your family and your neighbors, means that we overlook people's faults. Because we understand that if God pointed out all of our faults, we would be condemned. We know that God did not send his son to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And so we are merciful because we have received mercy and so that we can continue to be recipients of mercy. I was reminded of this reality this last week. I attended our Salt Company College ministry at University of St. Thomas, and one of our young staff guys, Colin Provart, gave a great message on the Good Samaritan. And he reminded me that the Good Samaritan is held up as this ideal because he was the one who showed mercy. You remember that story? There's this guy laying in the ditch who would have been the Samaritan's oppressor. Somebody who was 
racially, thought he was superior, thought he was superior in terms of his religion, and would have been very unjust in his treatment of the Samaritan. But the Samaritan understood something about God, and he understood something about humanity that caused him not to count that fault against his oppressor, but instead he showed him mercy. What a counterintuitive way to live. But when we see it lived out, we see it as beautiful. But how many of us will walk into that life? Who is it that you have something against? What if you overlooked it? What if you loved them anyway? You'd be close to the kingdom of God. The sixth thing Jesus says is that the blessing of the kingdom is for the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So our world is not characterized by purity of heart, but by perverseness of heart. And here's how I would characterize perverseness of heart. The way that we've flipped this around is instead of loving and serving those around us as image bearers of God, we're using each other. We're not loving each other, we're taking from one another. So think about greed, for example. We're trying to get other people to serve us, get in a position of authority or power in such a way that other people serve us so that we become richer. Or we get in places of power so that other people look to us and they worship us and they think that we're great. And so we use other people rather than caring for other people. Or think about our sexual relationships. How we think that if we desire somebody, that we can use them for our own selfish gratification even though they wake up with a pit in their stomach the next morning and feel like a piece of trash. But we don't think about that because our hearts have been so perverted. And Jesus says the blessing of the kingdom isn't for people who use one another, but it's for people who serve one another, who see each other as image bearers of God and would not stamp out God's image. This is the purpose of all of God's commandments that we would love one another. And this gets really practical. It means that we treat each other with purity according to God's word. So we receive the people around us as a gift of God to be loved, not as servants of us to be trashed. The blessing of the kingdom comes to the pure in heart. Number seven, the blessing of the kingdom comes to the peacemakers. It says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Okay, so peacemaking is different than peacekeeping. So a peacekeeper is somebody who will keep the peace at all costs. So you do something wrong or they do something wrong 
And it's kind of just this attitude of, it's okay, it's okay. We're, you're good, I'm good. Let's just keep things on the surface. Let's not rock the boat. Let's not make any waves. Everything's just fine. What Jesus is calling us to in the kingdom here is a costly peace. A peace that is willing to reconcile relationship no matter what the cost is. So peacemakers are people that are willing to apologize. You know how that feels when you've done something wrong, when you've treated somebody in a way that is unkind, you've used them, you haven't been caring for them, you've said a word that hurt them, and you know that God is calling you to go apologize to them. A peacemaker is someone who takes that step and is willing to just look people in their life in the eyes and say, I'm sorry. This isn't a one-time thing. This is something that as Christians, we do on a regular basis because as often as we sin against somebody else, we're called to apologize to them. Now that might be the easiest step that we can take in peacemaking. Because it's not just true that we're called to apologize to people, we're supposed to show vulnerability when other people have hurt us. And so if somebody has hurt you with their sin, as Christians, we're supposed to have the courage to go to them and tell them that they've sinned against us that they've hurt us, that we're willing to forgive them, but there's actually going to be a standard in our relationship. And that's so vulnerable for us because I think when we step out and have those type of conversations with people and show that type of vulnerability, what we do is we open up a brand new kind of relationship with somebody. Because what we're afraid of when we're vulnerable enough to call somebody else out in kindness and in love is we're afraid that they're going to at some point return the favor. We've set a new precedent in the relationship. But Jesus calls us to that type of peacemaking because relationships quickly erode. There can be a lack of trust and they need continual upkeep. So what do we do? When we call somebody out and they refuse to apologize, we say to them, when you're ready to apologize, I am more than willing to forgive. And so we demonstrate what Jesus said before. We continue to show mercy. So the difference between the way that we act within the world and the way that the world acts is that our goal in all of our interactions, in relationships, is true reconciliation. Our goal is not to bury people in shame or to condemn them. It's in order that they might be in right relationship with us and with God. So our goal is true reconciliation. So we don't do the outrage thing at Salt City Church. We don't rage against people's sin. 
We don't talk about people behind their back and slander them. We pursue face-to-face reconciliation because that's what God has called us to do. And look what Jesus says. He says, as a peacemaker, you'll be called a son of God. Now notice, out of all the Beatitudes, this is the only one that ends with us being called sons of God. And I think it's because in this value of the kingdom, we specifically bear the image of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, it says that Jesus came with both grace and truth. Jesus is the ultimate costly peacemaker. Jesus came to reconcile us to God and to himself at the cost of his very life. He didn't sweep any of our sin under the rug, but even in the Beatitudes, he is confronting our sinfulness. And the reason he's doing that is not to rub it in our face, but because he loves us and wants what's best for us. So you want to be like the Son of God, you pursue this costly peace. And the ultimate destination that we have for everyone in our life is that they would be reconciled to God that they would have right relationship with God. Because right relationship with God flows into right relationship with each other. So we're peacemakers. Lastly, Jesus brings a curveball in at the end. And he says that the blessing of the kingdom is for those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So when you begin to think about this, you realize that this last, the eighth beatitude, is the logical conclusion of the other seven. Sometimes we think that if we lived out the values of the kingdom, that people would love us and appreciate us. But the truth is that this way of living is so odd and so counterintuitive that it becomes a threat to those around us because it completely undermines the way that the world works. So when other people are hating people and outraged against them and you're showing mercy, your mercifulness exposes their hatred. And so all people have as a weapon against this true Christian attitude, this true Christian likeness is slander. Have you ever had somebody, because of your faith in Christ, utter something false against you, accuse you of doing something or being something that you weren't. Here's what Jesus says, our response to being treated that way as Christians should be. Rejoice and be glad. Why would we rejoice and be glad? We rejoice and be glad because we understand the blessing 
of having a good reputation with God and a bad reputation with the world is better than having a good reputation with the world and a bad reputation with God. We are, at the end of the day, God-pleasers, not people-pleasers. We find our identity and our value and our strength in Him and Him alone. So important that we understand this in our current cultural climate. Because we've been so used to getting the approval of people that sometimes when we lose it, we feel like we're doing something wrong or we're not representing Jesus. But that's not always the case. Sometimes we lose reputation with the world specifically because we're living the way that Jesus has called us to live. Now, over the years, one of the most common examples I've seen of this, specifically with college students and others, is that when they come to Christ, their parents or somebody who is close to them, will accuse them of being in a cult. That sounds kind of ridiculous, because I would be a horrible cult leader. (laughs) I never tell anyone to drink Kool-Aid or I'll get the same haircut as me. If I do, leave the church. (laughs) But why would they bring cults into it because often I think the parents of these young believers are exposed by the life transformation of their kids so they grew up in a dead church or have no church experience their kids come home their value system is flipped upside down they begin to share about their life change And their parents are threatened by it because it undermines the entire way that they grew up. And so the only weapon that they have against their kids is not to accuse them of doing anything wrong, but to make up a false accusation. Blessed are the persecuted. In a way, this is what we're shooting for as Christians, because Jesus, our Savior, is the ultimate persecuted one. His life was a life of perfect submission to the Father's will. His life was a life of moral beauty and perfection and love, and no one was more slandered than him. Okay, guys, so you feel the tension at this point, right? You're feeling the tension of, okay, in some ways... This is a really low bar. Like Anybody can get on this. Anybody can be poor in spirit and cry about the condition of the world, but you're also feeling the idealism of it. Simultaneously, anybody can do this, but it feels impossible. So how do we change? We have to see that coming into the kingdom is coming to Jesus himself. And this is where the book of Matthew is building to. In Matthew 11, verse 29, Jesus said this, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Here's my encouragement to you. If you're starting to have this argument with yourself, am I good enough to be in on the kingdom of God? Jesus would say, 
No, you're not bad enough yet. See, that's where our, our thinking gets off. We start to think of the kingdom of God like we think of the kingdom of the world, like it's something that we have to achieve. But the reason that it's not something we have to achieve is the leader is so different. He says he's gentle and lowly in heart. All you have to do to get into the kingdom of God and to stay involved in the things of the kingdom of God is to admit that you could never qualify to be part of the kingdom of God. Are you willing to rip up your spiritual resume? Are you willing to give up your religion and admit that you could never be righteous enough to get in on this? And come down to where Jesus is and say, I've got nothing. Would you help me? I'm desperate. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. I need help. If you're there, you're not far from the kingdom. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this counterintuitive message. If you recruited based on our spiritual strength or our resume, none of us could live up to your standards. And so thank you that you lower the bar. You make it so low that anybody can get in on it. God, would you help us to let go of our best qualities, the things that we take pride in, our spiritual disciplines, our Bible knowledge, our Christian school past, the church that we grew up in, our physical beauty, our money, our possessions, the school that we're a part of, the job that we have. Would you allow us to lay that all at your feet? And just to say that we have nothing. What a beautiful thing, Jesus, to have nothing and yet to possess everything in you. Amen.